Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. I'm pretty excited for the snow, aren't you? Exactly. <laughs> well, when it comes, so what can we thank God for when it comes? What we can thank Him for is use it as, a, as one of the uh, reminders of Scripture that though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Okay, so we can go there. That might make you feel a little better about it. The good news is it's probably all gone tomorrow. That'll be nice. Um, a couple of things I'd like to run by you. First of all, uh, while, while folks are getting seated, kind of, not kind of, I'm extremely excited about the things going on here at Christ Community right now. Uh, the staff has been meeting, we're, we've been meeting actually every day, every morning at 9.30 uh, throughout the week, and we've been, we've been working towards our, our goals for this year and, and reaching those goals. And if you don't know this by now, our goals are that we would have, in this year, have 100 new families and we would have 100 baptisms. That's our goal. Uh, there's no sense in, in approaching God with goals and dreams and have small goals and dreams. Uh, we believe in BHAG. That's big, hairy, audacious goals. And the reason we do is these are goals that can only be accomplished because God's doing it, you know? And so no one gets the credit for it except Him. And one of the ways we're doing that is, is we're actually taking the congregation and we're making smaller groups and we're having some dinners over the next few months and and sharing this vision and casting this vision before a small group instead of the whole group at one time. But at, at, at a certain point in time, everybody is going to be or invited to be on board with this. And so I'm, I'm excited about that, and I hope you'll pray for the staff, and I hope you'll pray for the church, that, uh, that God will help us as we continue to move forward, as we, uh, we desire to impact southern Ohio and northern Kentucky with the good news of Jesus Christ. The second thing I'm going to tell you, and this is just, uh, this isn't really by way of announcement, it's just that it's, it's, uh, it's kind of bragging, it's kind of saying, holy cow, I really did that, but um, you know, last weekend, Cindy and I watched our grandkids for an all-nighter. Uh, now, now, some of you may go, okay, well, that, that's cool, that's great, but see, we have, a, we have an army of grandkids. Uh, we, we really do. There's, there's, right now, together, there's 10 of them. There's going to be 11, and the oldest is 7, okay? So it's not like there's one you can go, here, take these kids and go play with them. It's, you have to be watching all the time. And so we, we found ourselves going, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to feed them here at the house? Which the answer was no, because we don't want to clean up the mess, but what that meant is we had to take this, this group of, of kids out to eat. And so when we, the worst part of taking kids anywhere is putting them in a seat, okay? I, I think seats and the idea of seats are from the devil. But, uh, and, and if you just have one, it's work. I'm telling you, if you have ten, it's craziness. And so we get them all buckled in. We go down to a restaurant there in Wheelersburg, and, and, and we're sitting there ordering our food and and Cindy takes a couple of the kids to the restroom to clean up, wash their hands and stuff. And while, while she's away at the restroom, I hear this 
kabang, this big crash, and I look up, and, and there is this lady who is standing, standing at the arcade machines, and she's going, oh my gosh, where's his parents? His parents were on a date somewhere, having a nice time, while the grandparents, one was in the restroom tending to two of them, and I was, I was out there and looked up, and there's four-year-old Carter, who was being helped to his feet, and this machine, this, you know the machine where they have candy in it, and it has a little claw, and it goes down, and it doesn't really pick up anything, but they take your money, and... And so he was trying to get some candy out of the machine, and, and it didn't come out, and he was frustrated. And so he thought if he could just pull a little harder on that little knob, it would happen again. Well, what happened is that machine just came right over on him. Big old thing. Now, the good news is it didn't hit him because of the way it was, it was designed. But they, the crash that I heard was, was the guy setting the machine back up. Carter is standing there with his hands over his face as Cindy is coming out of the restroom with the two kids. And I just, I mosey over there. I, I don't run over there because I really don't want people to know that's mine. Okay? And so, so I, just, I just slowly make my way over there. Carter's fine. He, he comes to the table. He sits down. And the good thing about it is this machine that you never can get candy out of, well, when it fell over, all this candy came pouring out of it, and the waitress brings this big tray of candy and sets it down at Carter's. Uh, so so if, if you have kids and, and they, they get frustrated that they can't get the stuff out of it, just tell them to pull the machine on over. It works, okay? It, it really does. Um, and then after that, I can't remember the order of this. It was just one of those nights and still at the same restaurant, we're sitting at the table and Abby starts crying. Uh, Abby is my what, five-year-old granddaughter. Okay. I can't keep all this straight. Uh, my five-year-old granddaughter and, and she starts crying and I, she's two seats down from me and I go over to where she is and I said, Abby, what's the matter? She goes, I bit my finger. And so she had taken a big chunk out of her. I said, how'd you bite your finger? She goes, I was eating my French fries. And, and, and Abby, you know, she's just dumping it in, not paying attention that one of those things was her finger. And, and so she chowed down on her finger and, and she was crying, but then she was okay. And then finally, uh, as the evening was coming to an end, Katie was sitting next to me. Katie is three and she was sitting next to me, and Cindy had constantly been telling her, now, now sit down in your seat because, you know, the chair is going to tip over. And sure enough, boom, the chair tipped over. She went right back with the chair, but she didn't hit her head on the floor, which was a blessing. And so she just sat there shocked. Normally she'd be screaming like a banshee, but, but she, she sat there all nice and calm. And the good news is we got back to the house with no injuries. They went to bed. We all slept. We got them up the next day. We went to McDonald's. I remember placing the order. Um, I was given the order for all these kids. I couldn't remember the order time. I got to the counter, and they said, well, what do you want? I said, uh, just give me a dozen biscuits, okay? And uh, so we had more biscuits than you could shake a stick at, and everybody was good. It is cool being a grandparent, and, and it is cool surviving it. And the better news was before this started, 
Cindy and I were talking, and, and she thought, she had said, you know, maybe what we could do is have an all-nighter once a month. <laughs> so after, after that little all-nighter, it was like, well, maybe next year. You know, and I'm going, yes, yes. So God is so good, though. He is, he is good to bless us with children. He's good to bless us with grandchildren, as the Scripture says. And what an awesome responsibility it is to be able to pass along the faith of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, to your children, to your grandchildren. It's a blessing and an awesome responsibility. Okay, now we're going to dig in. I want you to take your Bibles. You can go to Ephesians chapter 3. And at the same time, I want you to take your bulletins out. And I want to read to you the quote that's at the, at the head of your bulletin. Winky Prattney simply writes this. Those that God used in the past were just ordinary people with an extraordinary master. Did you catch that? Those that God used in the past were just ordinary people with an extraordinary master. Here's what I want you to, you need to follow me on this because this is where I'm going. When I look at the Bible and I think of David and I think of Noah and I think of Abraham, I think of Job, I think of all of these saints these people that I hold in high esteem, high regard, these people that when I get to heaven, I'm going, it is going to be so cool to look these guys up because these guys were close to God. These guys accomplished great things for God. And, and I think about how awesome that would be. But when you really look at the scripture, what you discover is what Winky Prattney discovered here is that these guys were actually nothing great at all. These were just ordinary people living ordinary lives that God blessed and used. And I find hope in that. And you'll see how we find hope in that as we go on. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, we're going to start out with what I'm calling the great discovery. Scott worked on this just a little bit last week. But this discovery is something that, that should cause all of us to simply erupt in praise to God, okay? Ephesians chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 to 6. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into, now, now catch this phrase, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Okay, now follow me here. Prior to the New Testament, God's grace, although it was extended to the entire world, God's grace was specifically uh, extended to the nation of Israel. If you were born a Jew, you were, you were God's chosen people. You were his recipients of grace. 
He had set up a sacrificial system, a legal system, in order for you to function and in order for you to operate. And so Paul, in, in writing the book of Ephesians, Paul, who was formerly known as Saul, was a guy who had given his life to protecting the fact that Israel is God's, they are God's chosen people. And they are the recipients of his grace, not the Gentiles. Now, here's the deal. You are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. And so if we're living back in the Old Testament, we are watching this favored nation experience the blessings from God, yet we ourselves are unfavored because we're not God's chosen people. That's what the Old Testament looked like. But the mystery that Paul is referring to is that even during that time, God's plan was that this grace would be made known even to the Gentiles and available to the Gentiles. That's you and that's me. And so what I want you to see in the scripture, uh, the first two things under the great discovery, when Paul came to faith in Christ, and we have to start here, when Paul came to faith in Christ... He was physically blinded, okay? He was physically blinded. This is important you get this. I'll read uh, chapter 9 of Acts, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul, now this Saul is going to eventually be Paul, but this is his name prior to his conversion. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that means any Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he didn't eat anything. And so when, when Jesus presents himself to Saul, who is on his way to arrest and kill Christians, he presents himself and says, with this bright light, and says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul cries out, wait, wait, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm the one you are persecuting. This is the resurrected Jesus appearing to Paul. And in that appearance, he blinds him physically for three days. Okay? And what God was going to do in, the, in those three days, he was going to let Paul know that when he received his sight back, that his mission was no longer to go and kill Christians but his mission now was to go and share with all the non-Jews, all the Gentiles, the wonderful grace of God and open the eyes of their hearts. So he was physically blinded, but he was going to be sent 
to those who were spiritually blinded. Are you with me? He was physically blinded, going to be sent to those who were spiritually blinded. And we'll we'll hit a couple of verses in Acts chapter 26 just to show you his, his calling. He's recounting his conversion here in Acts 26, his time on the road to Damascus. Verse 16, the Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now listen. This is huge. You can't miss this. This is huge. That sound like Donald Trump. This is huge. Uh, this, but, but it is. The idea that God would extend his grace to a bunch of Gentiles who were known as pagans, barbarians, heathen. That God would extend his grace to all of these broken people, none deserving his grace. That's enormous. That God would take a guy who was a persecutor of Christians, who killed Christians, who went into the homes of Christians and separated husbands from wives, separated children from parents, and persecuted them and killed them, threw them in jail. All that he did. The idea that God would use a guy like that absolutely blows my mind. But it's great news for us. It's great news, number one, because we have heard the gospel and we've responded to it. I am standing here as a Gentile Christian. And I'm doing that because God called Paul to start reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. And as people became Christian, they started spreading it, and they started spreading it, and they started spreading it until there was some guy named Dwight, and I don't know his last name, and I wouldn't know him to walk by him on the street, but a guy named Dwight who first got my interest in the faith and being serious about being a Christian. And when I, was, when I was living in Virginia Beach, and I remember him coming to me and talking to me about the love of Christ. There was a guy named Robert who was a, in my senior year when I was living in absolute rebellion to my parents and, and to God. That this Christian young man, he, he poured into me the love of Christ. I heard it over and over and over again from him. Rick, you need to become a Christian. You need to follow Jesus. And then there was the guy who was my best man in my, in my wedding he, he, uh, with Cindy. He stood right there with us as we stood at his church to get married on Dece- this last December 31st. Jerry Beck was the guy who said, come on, Rick, we're going down to the church when I was at Asbury College. We're going down. I said, I don't want to go, Jerry Beck. I want to just stay here in the dorm. No, come on, man. We're going to go. We're going to go down. And we went down. And there at the end of the service, I found myself on my knees, pouring my heart out to Christ and saying, I am so sorry for my life, for my sin. And I'm asking you to come and forgive me. See, all of that started because God called Saul, who became Paul. And that's why you're sitting here. It all goes back there. It all, this, is, this is huge stuff. 
As a result of that, uh, as a result of that calling, you can fill these in in your bulletin. Paul viewed himself as an ambassador of grace, an administrator of God's grace. And he says that in verse 2 of, of Ephesians 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He knew that he was entrusted with something great. And that he couldn't do anything but share it. He could not shut up about it. He couldn't hide it. He couldn't be an undercover follower of Jesus. He was going to be out there at the very risk of his own life. He also viewed himself in verse 7 as a servant of God where he writes, chapter 3, verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given me through the working of his power. The word servant is the same word for slave, meaning that when God grabbed me, he became my master. And he's my master, and so I'm his servant, and I'm going to obey what he desires. And then the third thing, Paul viewed himself as a sufferer for Christ. See, I want you to catch this. He's writing this book to the Ephesians, this treatise that Scott shared last week to the Ephesians. And as he writes it, he's writing it from prison. He's not writing it in freedom. He's writing it in chains. He says in verse 13, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So he viewed himself as an ambassador for Christ, a servant for Christ, and a sufferer for Christ. Everybody got that? Okay, now that you have that, uh, this is where I want to go because I'm, I'm not turning the table but I'm going to tell you, when I was studying Ephesians 3, I landed on a verse, two words in this verse that just captured me, and I couldn't get away from it. I read it, I read it again, I read it again, and I'm thinking, I want to put this, I want everybody to understand the historical framework of it so we can really get, get a grasp of this, picture, of this chapter, but I can't get past these two words. And so that's where I'm going to land, okay? And I'm going to tell you these two words I hope will bring you hope. These two words I hope will bring you encouragement. And for those of you who are sitting here this morning, these two words, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I hope these two words will declare to you how much Jesus loves you. And I, I, wanna, I want you to see this in verses 7 and 8. You have this in your bulletin already. The least likely. Verse 7, Paul, referring to being a servant, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Now, now stay with me here. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Paul, you're not less than the least. You're the Apostle Paul. I mean, you, you've written more stuff in this New Testament for us to teach us what it means to follow him. You're not less than the least. You're, you're up there. You're up there. But when you study the words less than the least, the Greek literally just comes down to two words. The least likely. 
Paul viewed himself as the least likely candidate to be used by God. Why? Why did he view himself that way? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he had a past. And his past was a horrible past. You see, now he wasn't a past, he didn't have a past like I did. He didn't have, he probably didn't have a past like you did. He had a religious past. Because the reason he went around killing Christians, the reason he separated husbands from wives and, and children from parents and had them put to death, the reason he did that is because he believed he was protecting Judaism. He was protecting what God had established in the Old Testament. And these Christians running around talking about a resurrection? Are you kidding me? That's going to do all kinds of damage to, to our legalistic faith. And so Paul saw himself as God's protector and God's persecutor. God's judge. And so he went around killing Christians. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you this. Let's say that we had an opening on the staff here at Christ Community. And we, and we advertise that. And, or let's say you have an opening at your business, your place of employment. And, and you advertise it and you get the resumes in. And when you get your resumes in and you get, the, you get the character references, you find out that the one applying for the job is, uh, is a killer. He's murdered people. He's gladly murdered people. And he murdered people thinking he was doing the will of God. Is that a guy you're going to hire? I, I can tell you that uh, if we didn't know anything about Paul and we got his resume at Christ Community Church, he, would, he, he wouldn't make the bottom of the list. He'd be thrown away because he has a past. And Paul, more than anyone, knew his past and he was able to look at the idea that, that Jesus would save him and then actually use him to tell others about him, use him to plant churches all over the known world, Paul goes, I gotta, I'm the least likely person to do that. I would not pick me, is what he was saying. And somehow, in God's grace, he takes this murdering, family-destroying person and he saves him, and then he uses him. And he uses him to accomplish great things for God. That's huge. That's huge that he would even consider that, that he would do that. We don't operate like God operates. We operate way different than God operates. Think about this. We all have our lists. We have our lists of what someone has to be like in order to be used by God. 
I've got my list. I mean, my hands up, okay? I've got my list. You have yours. And this list is made up of what Rick Clark wants to see in someone before that someone can actually be used by God. And what I find myself doing is I find myself judging people who say that they, they not only want to follow Jesus, but they want to, they want to declare Jesus. They want to live for him. They want to, they want to do great things in his name. And I look at them and I go, wait a second. You know, I, I think your, your heart's right, but you don't measure up to my list. You know, I don't, I don't know that you can, you can do that. I've got a friend that I had, had made while I was at Asbury College. His, na- his name is Brad Kalajane, and Brad was going into ministry, and I just thought Brad was just kind of a dopey guy uh, all through college, and I knew he was studying for ministry, and I was thinking, this is after I'd become a Christian, and I'm seriously, I was such a judgmental jerk at that time, and, and while, I'm, while I'm preparing for ministry, I'm thinking, God, you got it made having me on your team, and, uh, and, and you know, whatever I do is going to be good. Whatever I touch turns gold. You know, that kind of thing. I was just so full of myself. I'm sorry to admit that. If I disappointed you, get used to it because I'm not all that. And, uh, and so I, I, I had this judgmental spirit. And I was looking at Brad and I'm going, dude, Brad, you know, I, I don't know how God can use you. You're just, you're just so dopey. Brad pastors the largest Methodist church in America. He's in Michigan, um, multiple campuses. His church is so large and so successful that the Methodist church, the hierarchy of the Methodist church doesn't touch him because it's all going so well. It's all going so well. God takes people who don't measure up on our list and uses them for his glory. God takes the least likely on your list, and he takes that least likely person and accomplishes great things. God took Paul, the least likely, and accomplished planting the church over the entire globe. A killer, a murderer, a short dude. He was. The word, your name kind of, your name's meant something, and Paul means a little guy. He was a short dude with bad eyes. And we'd look at that guy and go, dude, you are so ugly. God can't use you. So he was a short dude with bad eyes that had a really bad past. And God said, watch this. God took the least likely and made him the most fruitful. That's huge. Let's look at... uh, I'll pick it up at verse 8 again. I want to read through, excuse me, read through verse 13. Although I am less than the least, or although I am the least likely of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. 
His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Look at that little quote I put down in your bulletin. You are never too broken for God to use your story. See, this was the thing about me before I became a Christian. When when I was on my knees before the Lord, I had no clue God would want to use a, a jerk like me. A bum like me, a sinner like me. I had a past, just like Paul has a past, just like you have a past. We all have them. And your past isn't pretty, and my past isn't pretty. Oh, we can try to cut out the the bad parts and, and just make our life look good, but God knows our past isn't very pretty at all. And yet God looks looks at that. And he says to you and to me, the least likely of all people, he says to you, I love you so much that I'm going to die for you. And not only am I going to die for you, but I'm going to place my spirit in you and I'm going to give you the capacity to do and to be what you never thought you could do and be. And that is my ambassador. You have this treasure of my love in your heart, in you. And I'm going to use you to share it with all who will hear. And he's not just saying that to Rick Clark. He's, he's, he's saying that to all who will come to faith in him. He uses the least likely. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond, how do you respond when, when it hits you? When you finally get it, when the eyes of your heart are open and you go, oh my gosh, you mean that this is actually available to me? You mean that that Christ will forgive my sin and that he will not hold me accountable for my sin before the Father? Do you mean that, that when judgment comes, that I will actually be able to stand before God knowing that I have access to heaven because of Jesus? Do you mean that? That's exactly what I mean. How do you respond to that kind of news? Well, I want you to write this down because this is important you grab this. The first is that you have to, you have to respond in humility. You have to respond in humility. I was sharing with someone just this week. Don't miss what I'm about to tell you. I love, this This is the comment. I love God. I believe in Him. I love Jesus. But I don't feel like I can be a Christian. I'm not sure I am a Christian. I don't know how to know I'm a Christian for sure because I'm not that good. If I would get this area, these areas of my life fixed up, 
then maybe God will accept me. And that's not how God operates. And this was the conversation we had. God accepts you right where you are. Are you a drug addict? God accepts you right where you are. He doesn't say, go get clean first, and then I'll consider it. Are you an alcoholic? God accepts you right where you are. He doesn't tell you to go dry out first. Are you an adulterer? Adulteress? God accepts you right where you are. He takes you right where you are. And then he puts his spirit in you. And his spirit begins the lifelong process of conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And sometimes you're going to do really good at that. And sometimes you're really going to stink at that. But he doesn't stop loving you. His love never fails. It never runs out. It never gives up because he is faithful even when we find ourselves inconsistent in living for him. That's what he does. And so because he does that, what else can you do but just humble yourself? Because you know, just like I know, I don't deserve it. You don't either. Yet he offers it. And then the second thing, the second response has to be this. It has to be confidence in God. It has to be that since you know you cannot save yourself, you can't get your act cleaned up for God to accept you, you have to then come to terms with the fact that you can be confident in Him because He's the one that's going to save you. He's the one that's going to work in you. I got this all wrong, folks. I got this all wrong. Some of you may be where I was. I I mean, I have... I have, thank God, changed completely, turned around about this. You see, I always viewed God as, as, a, uh, as a reactionary. I'm going to come down on the floor. I don't know why. I'm just tired of standing on the stage. I always viewed God as a reactionary God. What do I mean by that? I mean that I viewed God as someone who put a plan into motion, but he would, he would always be disappointed with how his plan came out. Does that make sense? For instance, when he created, he created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are in a perfect relationship with each other, and they're in a perfect relationship with God. And, and so Eve when she takes the fruit and she eats the fruit of the tree, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve go and hide because they realize they're naked. And, and it's, the scripture says, and God comes in the cool of the day in the garden. He's coming to fellowship with his creation. Perfect fellowship. And they're not there. And he goes, Adam, where are you? And Adam goes, uh, well... I was naked, and so I I hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did, Did you eat the fruit of the tree which I told you not to eat of? 
And he goes, uh, uh, the woman made me do it. And God, God looks at the woman and he says, Eve, what have you done? And she goes, uh, the devil made me do it. I mean, they started blaming each other. And see, it's right there that I picture God going, oh my gosh, this perfect creation. It's, it's, it's rebelling against me. And I see God just kind of head in his hands on the throne going, God, what do I do now? What do I do? I thought it was all okay. And while God's got his head in his hands, the world continues to grow and, 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 and populate. And, and everybody, the scripture says, their mind was only on evil all the time. And so you have this... And I see God going, I don't know what to do. And, and, and then I see it like a light bulb come on. And he goes, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll get a guy. I'll get Noah and his family, all eight of them. I'll tell them to build a boat. It's never rained before, but there's going to be a flood like nobody's business. And, and, and it's going to just destroy everybody and we'll start all over, okay? That's got to work. And so God puts that plan together. The flood comes, destroys everybody except for eight people who get out of the boat. And when they get out of the boat, because the floods have receded, when they get out of the boat, the first thing Noah does, and I think I might do it too if I was cooped up with a bunch of animals for a year, is Noah builds an altar, sacrifices to God, puts a tent up, and gets plowed. And, and he gets drunk, and he's laying naked in his tent, and I, I somehow, in my mind, I picture God going, oh my gosh, what? Noah, what are you thinking? You got a chance to start over. You were my plan. And, and, and because, because sin continued on, I, I, I always saw God reacting. Not God in control, but God reacting. I'll tell you what. What I'm going to do is I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick a nation. I'll just pick a nation. I'll call them Israel. And, and we'll let this nation just declare my love to everybody. Will you do that with me, nation? Oh, yeah, we'll do that. And so God takes the nation Israel. He gives them ten commandments to live by. And what do they do? They blow it. They go chasing after other gods. And he, I can see God going, this is where I was. I see God going, oh, no, the whole nation, really seriously? Are you kidding me? This can't be happening. Everything I'm doing trying to love these people is failing. That's how I viewed God. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to send a bunch of prophets. And these prophets are going to come, and they're going to say, hey, God's going to kick your tail if you don't straighten up. And that will straighten everybody up. But that didn't. Everybody just killed the prophets. And so, I, I, so plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Plan C didn't work. Plan D didn't work. <sighs> Jesus, here's what I'm going to have to do. I, I, son, I hate to do this to you, but I, I don't know any other way. And see, I saw Jesus as a plan E. But do you know that that's not how it was? Do you know, do you know that from before the foundations of the world, from before the first word of creation was spoken, from before God said, let there be light, and boom, there was light, from before that, the scripture says that the plan was already in place that Jesus would come, that this, 
This is God's plan A. God isn't reactionary. God knows what's going on. He is, he is in full control. So then why did he do all that stuff then? Why didn't he just send Jesus? Which is my question, by the way. Uh, when I get to heaven and I stand in that King's Island line, you know, where you go back and forth like this, to get up to God to ask him the question, my question is, hey, if you knew you were going to send Jesus, why didn't you just send him? Why wasn't there Adam, Eve, Jesus? You know? Uh, but I think I know why. I think I know why. Because in order for you and I to get to the place where we go, we need Jesus, we had to prove to ourselves that we couldn't please God. Amen. And so God let history go on so that history could prove you cannot make it. You are unrighteous on your own. So that when the time was just right, he would send his son who was the plan all along. And he sent him to the least likely people, us, people, people who were in rebellion to him. That's what he did. So you can have confidence in God because his plan has always been in place. He doesn't change. It's always been steady and consistent. And you can have confidence in that. And so, when Paul comes to that realization that he's the least likely, he closes this chapter, although we don't... Chapters are for us. There weren't chapters when this was written. They're for us. They're for references. But this chapter closes, I believe, at the right place. And that's with a prayer. See, when Paul thinks about God actually using him the least likely person in the world to be used, here's what he comes up with in his prayer. And it's in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And I'll tell you this. You can do this with me. You can follow me on the screen. You can follow me in your Bible. Or you can just bow your head and listen as Paul prays, not just for the church in Ephesus, but for all those who believe. Here it is. For this reason, I kneel. For what reason? The reason that God loved me and gave himself for me. That I'm the least likely. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer. What a prayer.
here's what we're going to do. In just a second, I'm going to jump back up on the piano and, and I'm going to play a little chorus from years ago, years ago. It goes like this. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. And this morning, you're welcome to sing this with me as a prayer. But I want to invite you to do something else. If you are not a Christian and you're hearing something you've heard over and over and over again in your life, but it's hitting home today, how much Jesus loves you, then I would just want to invite you right where you are. You don't have to get up and run circles around the room. You don't have to weep. You don't have to. I'm going to ask you right where you are, if you'd be willing to, to bow your head and to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, who came to save you. Repent of your sin, which means not just tell him you're sorry, but turn away from it and ask Ask Him to come and dwell in your heart so that you can live for Him. He'll take you right where you are. And when we sing, I want to invite you just right where you are. Just pray. I will tell you, you will never make a greater decision in all your life than the decision of what you're going to do with Jesus. For those of you who have been following Jesus for some time, like myself, I want you to consider doing something. I want you to consider the fact that when God saved you, you're the least likely person. I want you to consider the fact that he would actually save you so that he could use you to declare his love to others. Consider that and ask him, ask him to begin to open up for you avenues where you can tell others about him. But let me tell you what, be careful. Because if you ask him to do that, he's going to do that. That's a that's 100% yes answer to that prayer. God, is it, is it true that you would use me to tell others about you? Then, Lord, please open up a way for me to do that. Oh, the way's going to open up. It's going to open up in ways you could never imagine. The least likely. So, I invite you to, to sing, to pray. As we do this little chorus together.
Spirit of the living God fall fresh on me Spirit of the living God fall fresh on me melt me mold me Father, I thank you so much for your grace and mercy. I thank you for loving us, for pouring out yourself for us, the least likely. I pray now, God, as we go from this place, I pray that you will use us. Use us to take the message of your love to all those that we connect with this week. I pray that you will fill us with your spirit, conform us to the image of your son, and use us the least likely to do great things for you. In your name I pray. Amen. Christ community, God bless you guys as you prepare to go and as you prepare to change this this community with the love of Christ. If you today have invited Christ to come and live in you, then before you go, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. Would you come up and grab my hand, shake my hand? I'd just like to look at you in the eye and welcome you to the family.
as a brother or sister in Christ. Okay, God bless you. Have a great week. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.